Welcome back to Artwatch Podcast. I hope you've had a wonderful week. Um, I just want to take a moment to recognize that this past Monday was Indigenous Peoples Day, and for those of you that aren't aware why we're no longer celebrating Columbus Day is because one, Columbus didn't actually discover anything, and two, all of the atrocities that started with him. Um, so look into the indigenous land that you're on, and contemporary indigenous artists and scholars of your area. But yeah, I just wanted to start off with that. Um, but today's subject for today is actually going to be one of my favorite topics in art history, pre-Columbian gold. Um, this is going to cover regions from like, uh, like what is now considered Colombia and parts of Central America, all the way down into um, the Andes the top part of the Andes. So this is super interesting to me because um, there's this beautiful metalwork tradition that happens and it's all through this lost wax method and hammering, which I'll talk a little bit about later. But some of the objects that I'm going to look at are actually held at the Met. Um, so if you are in the New York area or if you have been to the New York area and have been to the Met, then you probably know that there is a great collection of gold works that cover a wide variety of regions of Latin America. And I also am going to talk about some of the objects, well, mostly one of the objects held at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, just because um, I actually took a class there and uh, through my old university. And I wrote an entire semester paper on one of the objects. And I had the lovely opportunity of listening to the director of the Museum of Gold in Bogota, Colombia, come to our class and give a just this phenomenal lecture. And I'll talk about that a little bit later too. But I think it's important to start with the color of gold itself. So when looking at these objects, they aren't actually made of pure gold. They're all gold alloys. And there are some that have what's called rosado or more copper so it's going to have this really nice pinkish tone to it and um, the official term for this is called tumbaga. So tumbaga is mostly seen in cast objects so again using that lost wax method what these ancient artists would do is they would first create a wax model which is then encased in clay leaving a vent at the top for metal to later be poured into the mold. The wax mold is made from that specific type of bee that's produced a plastic-like wax and is only native to these regions in Latin America. The clay-covered wax model is then fired, which actually burns out the wax and leaves a hollow mold in the shape of the object. After this, molten metal is then poured into the clay mold, and once cooled, the clay is broken away, leaving the final gold product. A lot of these objects that were made using this method were actually called poporos, and they were containers that would hold wine. And so you have this hollow, hollow object that holds it's um, a mixture of lime and coca leaves, not to be confused with cocaine, which is an isolated aspect of coca leaf. Um, think of coca leaves more as like caffeine. So whenever they would chew it, um, it would help um, prevent, um, gosh, what's it called? <laughs> Altitude sickness. And it would mitigate fatigue. So 
these were often used ritualistically. It was part of oral tradition and like sort of this passing on of, of culture. And a lot of these objects, um, poporos specifically, they were um, in the shape of the human form or a gourd-like form. And um, interestingly enough, in the talk that I had, or not I had, it was the class had, with um, the director of the Gold Museum, she talks about how this, it was a white substance in this gourd-like form. Some of them have a very phallic shape with a nude female on, on it. And so it would be this sort of reinforced symbol of fertility, but we can talk about that in, in a sec. So um, back to the idea of Tumbaga. Most of these three-dimensional objects had this rosy hue because in order to melt gold, you needed a, a lower burning point. And gold has a pretty high burning point. So when, or melting point, not burning point. I don't know why I said that. Anyway, um, so you had to, in order to get this liquid metal, combine it with other minerals and that is how they were able to achieve this. A different type of gold object that you'll see in, um, in pre-Columbian gold is called the hammered object. And these ones don't usually have as much tumbaga in it because it has more pure gold forms. There's not as many um, other minerals in it or metals in it. So when you look at these objects in person, you'll often see they're a little bit more tarnished. They're thinner. They're often in used as masks or nose pieces, which were really important and um, symbolic of status. They were part of pectorals. But what's really important to remember is that these objects, of course, they're gold. They were made for the upper class. So sometimes in these gold pieces, the, the hammered ones, you will actually see paint residue or possibly blood residue. Some of them not quite sure. It depends on whether or not there has been um, samples taken of it. And because they have these paint residues, we can, scholars today can know that these were used ritualistically, as well as some of the, um, the documentation of colonization, throughout colonization. But um, ultimately, these objects were used by the upper class. They were made for the upper class, and they were often found in tombs. Now, and part of what we know about these objects is based on the layout of the tombs. I won't get too much into that just because I want to focus on the material itself and the cultural practice around it. There is this scholar named Dr. G. Reichel Dolmatov who wrote this article, Things of Beauty Replete with Meaning, Metals and Crystals in Colombian Indian Cosmology, written in 1981. And he, throughout the article, is looking at how these indigenous populations, contemporary I should say, um, were creating and hiding these objects. Now, part of the reason why he talks about the hiding of these objects is during Spanish intervention, or I should say invasion, the Spanish would actually take all of these gold objects because, of course, like they were looking for gold to send back, trying to exploit resources of the natural land. Um, and they would take these objects, send them back to Europe, and they would melt them down. Now, some of them were actually saved, and it's a miracle that actually some of these still exist from that context. But part of, part of this is due to the fact that the, indigenous, the ancient indigenous populations buried them because they were afraid of what the Spanish would do because, like I said, they were stealing these objects, melting them down for their own profit. And so you have 
these indigenous populations that were burying them and then during ritualistic uses they would uncover them use them again and rebury them now his article is ultimately an attempt to reconstruct the analysis of these geographical regions and stylistic cultural similarities between past and present populations, but he doesn't give agency to the fact that there was an introduction of new materials, and it also doesn't take into account that when the ancient civilizations were living and practicing at the time of Spanish conquest, there were hundreds of years between then and when he was looking at the contemporary indigenous populations. So there, he, the notion is problematic because it assumes that these people were not capable of change without the introduction of Western ideals. And additionally, it doesn't take into account the introduction of European practice and how this may have impacted the various styles. It also doesn't take into account that cultures, regardless of where they are, they change over time. Look at language, for example. We wouldn't, we don't speak the same way or write the same way as we did in like the 1500s. So culture is constantly changing and to assume that these contemporary indigenous populations know everything about their ancestors when almost all of the records themselves were destroyed because of the Spanish, it's just, it doesn't really <laughs> make sense. And while Dolmatov's article proposes some interesting entry points to understanding past cultures, it's overly assertive that modern indigenous populations know everything about their ancestors. I mean, look inside, like, do you know everything about, like, your great, 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 great grandparents? Do you even know where they're from? I mean, these are things we have to consider. Whereas in contrast, finally getting to that lecture with Dr. Uribe, um, she proposes these different ways of interacting with contemporary indigenous populations. So for those that aren't familiar with the Museo de Oro in uh, Bogota, Colombia, it's actually part of the federal government. So during the late mid to late 20th century, laws were actually put in place because you had um, looters from all around the world going into these ancient sites, digging up um, gold objects, and selling them on the black market. Um, and Colombia put in place this like these laws that basically said anything that is discovered um, after, I think it was like maybe 1970, I'm not quite sure, um, that it was then, like those objects then became property of the Colombian government and they went into the federal gold reserve or bank reserve? I'm not quite sure, I have to double check that. But she is, Dr. Uribe is the director of the Gold Museum, and she, in her lecture, detailed the many steps the Museo del Oro has taken to create a working relationship with indigenous cultures in order to document and preserve the history of these populations of Colombia. Now, I'm going to start referring to my notes, and just a quick sort of, I guess, note is that when we had this lecture, she was speaking in Spanish and we had two wonderful graduate students, Anna and Hector. Shout out to you guys if you're listening. And they were actually real-time translating this uh, discussion. So this, my notes may be a little off and I don't want to put words in, in her mouth because she is one of the most important figures in Colombian gold history um, and museum work, really. So she talks about how the Museo del Oro is a financial institution like the Bank of the United States. It belongs to the division of, of 
it belongs to the cultural division, sorry, and located at the, uh, in the central of Bogota. It's the most visited museum in the country that has a great diversity of visitors, and it's a symbol of national pride because it expands um, the history of, of Colombian art, which is which is beautiful. Um, so it's the most important gold collection uh, in the world of pre-Columbian gold works. Makes sense. And it... Um, they have objects ranging from also neighboring countries and clothing from pre-Columbian and uh, pre-Columbian uh, pre works. Sorry. Note to all of you young scholars out there, make sure your handwriting is legible even when you're taking notes quickly. Um, so she talks about in her, in her lecture how they are working mostly with the younger generations of... Um, in current indigenous populations because there is still with the older generations a sort of skepticism when working with the government and again this goes back to the trauma of spanish conquest where all of their objects were stolen melted down for the profit of the spanish uh kingdom and there's just this loss of culture i mean just imagine thousands or hundreds of thousands of years of works just gone in the matter of like maybe 50 years that's that's the severity of this um and so now, whether or not, like, I mean, of, of course, like, I'm not from Colombia. I don't want to, like, speak to the Colombian experience as both a, as a scholar, um, as a citizen, or as an indigenous person. So if I get something wrong, I do apologize. But she talks about how these, these indigenous people are still scared to talk about the production of their works because they don't want the government to intervene and they don't want their their culture to be lost and destroyed again. So there's still this huge, huge trauma. Um, and I think it's really important as scholars today that that we do our best to, to fix these wrongdoings and to at least bridge the gap from, from the past. I don't really know what the solution to that problem is other than being respectful and and trying to check our own prop, our own um, subjectivity. But yeah, another way that they're trying to study and preserve these objects is through conservation and chemical analyses of the objects themselves to better understand the alloys and what metals were going into the production. Um, there are, she makes a really important no note that there are no works that are 100% gold, so that does not make it easy to tell if it's a fake from a real one. So even today, like, uh, you'll still have people trying to pass off contemporary objects as ancient objects. And this happens, this happened throughout Latin America when you had, um, white collectors from the United States, Europe, and I think that in other regions maybe, I'm certain. Um, and they would try and buy these objects from the locals and some of the locals would actually like take them into the ancient sites and sell them. Others would make fakes and sell it off and be able to have a profit. Um, so she does talk about that and they're able to some degree like try and parse out the fakes from the originals and technology helps us in some cases um, because we don't know much about the artists themselves. And she then talks about how uh, when identifying Tumbaga, so those 3D objects, mostly I should say, smell is really important. She didn't really dis like discuss like 
like what it smelled like, but I would be interested to know exactly what Tumbaga smells like. I mean, who doesn't want to be able to handle art objects? I've had the opportunity a few times, of course, you know, wearing gloves, all the protective measures, but I never got the idea to smell it. And so that's just an interesting concept that I would, I would love to know more about. And, um, they have this, like, fantastic state-of-the-art, um, like, lab, and she showed some pictures of it, and it was, it was something, like, I had never seen before. It was so cool, and if you ever get the chance, you should definitely look up their website, because they, of course, it's all going to be in Spanish, but they can, I think it can get translated into English or whatever language is easiest for you, maybe French or German, I don't know. Um, but I know they have an English translation, and it's really neat because you get to see all of the culture practices they're trying to preserve, the objects themselves, and there's just, there's so many different beautiful cultures of that region, and I'm totally geeking out about that, but that's okay, that's what we're here for. We're all art historians, or we all love art. Um, so now I want to talk a little bit about the like the the popero itself. So the popero is um, a three-dimensional object. It would hold lime, like powder, cocoa powder, sort of a mix. And you had this like, it's not a stick, but the only thing I can think of is a stick. It's like a poker. So you would stick that and it's also a stopper. And you would put that in the, the object and then you would pull out whatever you needed and it would be used ritually, daily, um, that sort of thing. But she made like a really interesting note in her lecture in that some of these objects that were found in burial sites actually had bone fragment in it. So I, if anybody's interested, you should definitely check out the difference between them. I personally don't know like what quantifies a popero that would hold bone fragment and powder versus what would hold lime. Um, but that's that would be something super interesting and if anybody else out there knows something about it i would love to talk to you um <laughs> but these objects were mostly gourd shaped they were actually f primarily the ones that um i've studied and the ones that she talked about were from the kimbaya it was a it was just um they were a specific cultural region of uh ancient colombia yeah and, um, sorry, the reason why I question that is it actually stretches down a little bit further, um, and parts of other countries, parts of other present-day countries. And a lot of their objects, a way to tell a Kimbaya from, like, an Aguino or another, uh, like, Muisca, Muisca? I think I said that right, is that the Kimbaya focuses a lot on the gourd form, and this gourd form as symbolic of fertility and, um, the female figure, she notes, which is super interesting because on a lot of them, they're either in the shape of the female figure or they're in, like I said earlier, they're in a phallic shape. And in some cases, it combines both the phallic shape and the nude female. Each one is different. That's the beautiful thing about all of these cast objects throughout um, ancient, uh, like the ancient Colombian region is that because all of these um, casts had to be destroyed in the making, Every single object is different. Now, they'll have similarities because, like any culture, you have similar cultural practices that will sort of give scholars an idea of the region that these objects were made, but ultimately, every single one is unique, and how cool is that? But yeah, so she talks about how the squash is a woman, um, it's, and of course, like, since these are um, objects that resembled fertility or they're they're presumed to have resembled for um fertility practices 
there is a significance in the fact that the powder that comes out of it is white. Um, and so it's like related to bodily fluids. Don't really want to go any more than that. But yeah, so it's like this sort of cyclical nature. And then the fact that some of these had bone in them. So it in itself, maybe it becomes the cyclical nature of life. It's thought that many of these boboros would have been held at the waist or perhaps on like a staff. It depends on the individual object itself. Like I said, they're all different. And these differ greatly from the hammered objects. I'm gonna go back a bit. And the hammered objects were either used on the body themselves, specifically, um, you can see this in the nose pieces, that would often cover the mouth. So the breath was super important. And when, you, when these rulers would talk, the gold, like, leaf, I want to say, it would, like, make a tinkling, there we go, tinkling noise. And sound was really important. It was the breath, the breath of life. And this is something that's actually important in a lot of pre-Columbian uh, traditions, even in Mesoamerica. So in Mesoamerica, a common thing on the Aztec codices is you'll see, like, this, it almost looks like a speech bubble or, like, a little wind. It's, um, I think it's called the Echadol. I probably butchered that. It's been a while since I've looked at it. But yeah, so like there was this bodily importance to all of these objects. And again, some of them are ritual. Some of them were placed in tombs. And that's really the most of what we know. There's a lot of wonderful scholars out there that are talking about these. And if you are interested, the Met actually has a digital version of the Jan Mitchelson collection, I think it is. Let me double check. Sorry, it's the Jan Mitchell collection, but it has essays from a variety of different scholars that are talking about these objects from many different regions. And yeah, it's just super fascinating. I personally love the little frog pendants just because I, I, I love frogs. They're so cute. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so if you get a chance, check it out. Um, if your local museum has a gold collection and if it also has a library, I'm certain those librarians would love to talk to you. Granted, of course, right now it might be difficult because of COVID. But um, yeah, if you have if you have access to a collection, always reach out to your um, archivist, librarians. Sometimes even the curator if the museum is a bit smaller, maybe they're not as busy. I don't really know. But from what I've learned in the past, chances are these people are going to be very excited that somebody is researching something from the collection, and they'll provide you with as many materials as they can. Um, now, some objects have more research than others, but that's really just, um, it's a luck of the draw, and you could probably talk about more as to why some objects don't and some objects do, but that's an another conversation. So I think I'll go ahead and kind of close up the general discussion right there. I know it was a little bit back and forth and I'll do my best to be a bit more organized in the future. Um, I'm still getting over just being excited to talk to people about art. But um, I wanted to answer a question that was posed to me by one of my, my friends and colleagues, um, Hector, who actually helped translate that wonderful um, conversation with Dr. Uribe. And he said he was interested or curious about my association with Mexico and how or why that shapes my scholarship, why I relate more to my Mexican experience and at what level, 
was this always the case was this always the case sorry it cut out for a second and if not when how did it change so personally for me um Whenever I was growing up in Southern California, I never really noticed my skin color. I mean, I was really tan as a kid. Not so much anymore, but I'll get to that in a second. And I mean, I was around my family all the time, you know, fairly darker skinned uh, Mexican family. And there was, I don't know, like this sort of, like, I, I, I didn't really notice it. And then when we moved to Texas, I would often get this comment because I was, I was a huge nerd. I mean, I still am, but I would often get this comment, wow, you're really smart for a Mexican. And it was emphasis on really and Mexican. And it was things like this that over time, I kind of just didn't want to associate myself with that. And another part of this was because I had Mexican friends and they would also tell me, you're not really Mexican because your mom is white. Um, and therefore you, you're just white. Like you're not, you're not really Mexican. And so I got to this point um, where really, I, I think it was like middle school like eighth grade, where I just decided I didn't want to be Mexican anymore. I did not want to have dark skin and I literally hid from the sun for like eight years. And so I basically like completely changed my physical appearance because of these microaggressions. And it wasn't until I got to college, specifically my very first art history class at the University of Houston with my um, thesis director, Dr. Kuntz, where I started to get interested in pre-Columbian culture. I mean, I was taking the first class I took with him was pre-Columbian culture of Mesoamerica, right? And so that mostly encompasses Mexico. Um, at least we focused mainly on like the regions um, that were in Mexico. And it kind of got me thinking about, okay, well, I know I want to go to grad school. Well, what do I want to study? Because I was also looking at doing, um, it's called a senior honors thesis because I wanted to graduate early. And so I remember sitting in the office with one of the advisors and trying to figure out my plan. And she sees Dr. Koontz walk by and she says, hey, Dr. Koontz, can you come over here? The student has a question about honors thesis. And he asked what I was interested in. And I said, I'm either interested in Mexican art or feminist art. And he said, why not both? And it sounds like so simple, but it just like blew my mind. I was like, I never even thought to like combine those for some reason. I think it was honestly just like the disconnect from my own culture um, that like that just changed everything for me. And so I underwent like an undergraduate thesis that focused on like the Maya culture. My one of my other papers in his classes looked at modern Mexican uh, paintings. And then that specific painting actually started me on this entire path of um, study. And it, for some reason, like it was that moment where I was just like, fuck it, why am I so ashamed of being Mexican? I can be Mexican and I can be like, my mom's side is Polish, I can be Polish too. So like, I don't know, like just this, it was this sort of like liberating moment of reclaiming my own heritage and not being ashamed of it and so now I'm still really passable but like I'm not like afraid to like go out and exercise in the <laughs> in the sun and just I mean yeah I, I think that was that was really it for me and and that's why 
I'm really passionate about like learning about Mexican history because I mean of course like if you if you went to school in the United States you didn't really know like they never taught anything about Mexican culture despite like the huge impact that um the Mexican people had on United States history I mean they really did shape like this nation and I mean of course like other demographics um blacks Asians, like, just, we all shaped America, but of course, like, you know, there's the white narrative, um, which has gotten worse in recent times. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's, that's really why I focus on Mexico, and it's a way for me to, to learn about my dad's side of the family, and to learn about the culture that my grandparents came from, and... Yeah, and so that is why I decided to go or rather study Mexican art history. Um, just before I go ahead and close, if you have not already, make sure you subscribe and download. Um, I'm now available on um, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and finally Google Podcasts is up. So subscribe, download, um, yeah, and then if you like what you're hearing, of course there's Patreon, I'll put the link in the bio, and I'm going to start creating merch as an incentive for Patreon, so keep a lookout for that. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I will see you next Wednesday. Mm-hmm.